Well, with our four-part study on the Lord's Bread of Life sermon of John chapter 6, now complete, we turn to the next chronological event in the Lord Jesus' life, and that takes us into the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. We've been in John for a while, now we go back to Mark primarily. So if you want to open up your Bible to Mark chapter 7, we'll be in Mark 7, looking at verses 1 to 23, and the parallel account for this lesson on dirty hands or dirty hearts, it's number 72b in your books, but we're going to be devoting an entire lesson to it since we are through with the Bread of Life sermon. So really, for your sake, this will be lesson number 72. If you, We're going to also be looking a little bit at Matthew 15, verses 1 to 20. That's where the parallel account is given to it for us. Great interest was stirred up among the religious rulers down in Jerusalem over everything that Jesus had been saying and doing in Galilee. Remember, he gave the Bread of Life sermon where? Up in Galilee. He was in Capernaum of Galilee. Most likely, those Jews, remember, who had been hearing part of his Bread of Life sermon in the Capernaum synagogue and had heard his many claims to deity in the Bread of Life sermon, those Jews wasted little time getting word of these things, of what he had said, down to the Sanhedrin in the holy city of Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin, remember, is the ruling body of Israel, consisted of 70 men, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, and headed by the high priest, so really 71 men. And remember, too, that many in that 5,000-plus crowd that Jesus had miraculously fed the day prior to giving his Bread of Life sermon, many in that crowd had been Passover pilgrims, and they were on their way down to where? They were on their way down to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the uh, Passover. And we know, therefore, that many of them would have also spread word all over Jerusalem of what they had seen and heard Jesus Say and do. So word quickly made its way to the officials of the religious establishment, those of the Sanhedrin. And therefore, sometime shortly following the events and the sermon that we have just been discussing in John chapter 6, we find the incident that is recorded for, for us in Mark 7 and also over in Matthew 15. And uh, in this in event, this next chronological event of the Lord Jesus' life, we find that he was visited and scrutinized by a delegation of high-ranking religious leaders who traveled all the way from Jerusalem up to Capernaum, sadly, not in order to investigate honestly and openly the possibility of him truly being the Messiah, truly being the Son of God, as he had claimed over and over again, but rather, this was a committee of critics who were sent to find some fault in him. And we know that this was a fault-finding mission because it tells us in Mark 7, 2b, they found fault. They found what they were looking for. Many criticized the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already seen that in our Life of Christ study. Many criticized him, but none found fault so, in, so readily and so persistently as the religious leadership of the nation of Israel. Because why? Well, they felt threatened, didn't they? They felt threatened by his power. They felt threatened by his authority and his popularity. They were threatened more than anyone else. 
most of them had already determined that they would destroy him. They'd already made this determination. They had made this decision, remember, back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, when he had dared once again to expose their hypocrisy, as he had done throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and when he had challenged their traditions, particularly what tradition, regarding what day of the week? The Sabbath. And despite all the evidence to the contrary, the supposed religious rulers of Israel had concluded that Jesus performed his amazing miracles and cast out demons in the power of God, the Holy Spirit? No. They concluded that he did all those things in the power of Beelzebub or Satan. So they had been plotting, really, for some time now, how they would go about discrediting him and ultimately destroying him. Yet they had been biding their time. They had been being very cautious because he had been very popular with the common people and these religious men did not want to you know, stir up the masses. They didn't want to antagonize them any more than they were already against them. However, having now heard that the Lord Jesus had refused a crown that was actually offered to him up there in Galilee following the miracle when he fed the 5,000, and that as a consequence, most of his one-time followers had turned from him, which we read about in, in John 6, verse what? What verse? John 6, 66. I told you I could always remember that sad verse, 6, 66. Um, so now that most of his uh, disciples had turned from him, these religious rulers would have calculated among themselves that this would be an excellent time to further discredit Jesus. And so this delegation of Jews, consisting of Pharisees and scribes, traveled from Jerusalem. The Passover is now over. They traveled from Jerusalem some 90 miles up to Capernaum to follow Jesus and watch his every move until they found something to fault about him. You know, evil is very earnest isn't it? It's very, evil is very earnest and, and persistent. The enemies of truth and of righteousness will put forth a great deal of effort to, to do their wicked deeds. Think of all the plotting and planning that went into 9-11. Years of planning. And, the, and they'll, they'll spend a lot of time, they'll spend a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of money to propagate their evil, wicked programs and agendas. While, on the other hand, sadly, too many of those who embrace the gospel are kind of slack, aren't we? It's, a, it's kind of a shame that we don't put forth as much energy and time and effort into our good programs as they seemingly do in their wicked programs. And I'm talking about evil in general, not just... Uh, what we saw happen with 9-11 and the terrorists. Is it not true today that we see the zeal of evil outdoing the zeal for right? Sadly, it is. It's very true. Evil men did not think that it was too much to travel. Remember, how did they travel back then? Basically by foot. They didn't think it was too much to travel by foot almost 100 miles in order to attempt to hinder Jesus. 
And they found what they were looking for, although they did not find it in Christ himself, but in his disciples. Kind of like when they, the time that they accused his disciples of eating corns, uh, grains of corn on the Sabbath day. They couldn't accuse him. They didn't catch him doing it, but they found his disciples doing it. And that's what we see this morning. They will find his disciples doing something that went against their traditions. You know, the continuous criticism of Jesus Christ that goes on in the world around us today will only help to remind us of the absolute surety of criticism of his followers. Isn't that true? If they, if they go out of their way to criticize Jesus so much, what is a guarantee about you and I? They'll criticize you and I. Absolutely. If Christ, who is perfect, was continuously criticized, those of us who are definitely not perfect will also be criticized, and it, so therefore it shouldn't surprise us when we are criticized, should it? It should be no surprise to us at all. So it's important for us to be aware of the fact that this criticism and this fault-finding, oftentimes, where does it come from the most? Where did it come from, in Jesus' case, the most? That was a poorly worded sentence, but came from the religious crowd, didn't it? Where does our criticism, where, do you, where does it really sh seem to come from the most? It, I know when I was a, first, a new Christian, this shocked me. But it came from the religious crowd. Not the world. I expect the criticism from the world, but it really hurts when it comes from within the church or from, like, the religion I grew up in. You know, that's, that's where it, it basically comes from, and, and that's what we should be prepared for. And we should be prepared for it so that when it does come, it will not stop our service for Christ. Too many Christians quit along the way because of this, because of fault finders because of criticizers. Remember, who is our example? Jesus Christ is the one to get our eyes focused on. He and he alone. He is our example, and he did not quit, no matter how much he was criticized and scrutinized. We serve because we have been called to service. Not because we don't serve because of the compliments or the lack of compliments. Or at least we shouldn't. If we are, there's something wrong with our service. We serve because we've been called by our Lord to serve. We serve because we love him. So anyway, let's see what this delegation of fault finders found to criticize the Lord. Actually, by criticizing the Lord's disciples, they were criticizing him because he was their master. So let's look at what they found. And for this, we'll look at Mark 7, verses 1 to 5. Mark 7, verses 1 to 5. The accusation of the Jews regarding hand-washing, of all things. All right, it says, Then came together unto him, unto Jesus, and remember now he's in Capernaum, following the Bread of Life sermon, if you want to make a note of that, because you wouldn't know that if you were just studying through the book of Mark. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from where? From Jerusalem, all the way, 90 miles. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashing hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. 
Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, they asked Jesus, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands? All right, we'll stop right there before we get to his answer to them. All right, so this committee of critics observed that the Lord's men, his disciples, were not complying with what? Their traditions concerning the ritual of hand washing before the eating of bread. And it's interesting that this follows on the, on the heels of the Bread of Life sermon because here we're talking about bread. It's worth noting that they didn't even attempt to cover up the fact that their accusation was with regard to the breaking of tradition. They didn't even try to cover up that fact. It was a They were concerned because his disciples were breaking their tradition rather than breaking the law of God. In Matthew 15, 2, which is the parallel account, we read their direct question to Jesus, which is this. Why do thy disciples transgress the tra tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. The traditions of the elders, what is that? Well, that referred to those precepts or those concepts that were handed down from one generation to another, Jewish people, basically, first of all, by memory. They were just passed down by memory. And they were not commanded in the law of God, but they were ideas and precepts and concepts that the scribes and the rabbis, or, <laughs> rabbis, I made up a new word. <laughs> I like that word, rabbis. <laughs> And that the scribes and the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that they themselves decided that they, they were going to bind themselves to observe. They thought, oh, this is a good idea. So they passed it down, you know, to the next generation. And eventually, all of these traditions were gathered together and they were recorded in part of the Talmud. Now, remember, the Talmud is this huge collection, volumes and volumes, something like 26 volumes of books which is commentary on the Torah. The Torah is just the first five books of the, of the Bible, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. So they, contain, they, they wrote all these traditions down in the Talmud, and later on they codified them in the Mishnah. If you ever hear about the Jewish Mishnah, what it is is a book which is completely, entirely, a collection of Jewish traditions. Nothing but tradition, their, their tradition. And they're exceedingly numerous, as we've seen already when we studied all the Sabbath traditions. And they're very, very tedious, extremely tedious. And we'll see all that the hand-washing tradition involved in a little bit, a little bit later this morning. Um, according to their way of thinking and their traditions, the fact that the Lord's disciples were not washing their hands before they ate bread meant that they were non-religious. And therefore, their master could not possibly be a true teacher, a true teacher of Israel, and therefore disqualified totally, their, you know, to be the true Messiah. The tradition of hand-washing had originally built up around an important spiritual truth, although, as is the case with many things, the spiritual truth got lost along the way, and the ceremony became the all-significant factor, the all-significant issue. Isn't that true with many traditions? They start out with a good, something good behind them, but along the, along the 
process of time, people lose sight of, of the truth, and they just get all hung up in the tradition itself. So where did this tradition find its origin, this hand-washing tradition? Well, somewhere along the line, some of the religious leadership of Israel got the idea to take the law of God regarding the priests who were commanded to wash their hands, you know, the, before the tabernacle, before going into the holy place, there was a, a laver out in the outer courtyard that they, the priests would wash their hands before they would then offer the sacrifice to God. So somewhere along the way, some of the rabbis got the idea that if this was a good thing for the priests to do, because they understood that this was a picture of the importance of having a clean heart before they went in you know, to God's presence to offer the sacrifice. So they thought, well, if this was a good thing for the priests to do, then it would probably be a good thing for the people to do as well. So they decided that they would extend this law to everyone. It was simply determined that if this was a good thing for priests, it, had, it must be a good thing for, for the people, for all Jews to do. But before too long, the truth about having a clean heart before you went into the presence of God or before you ate the food that God provided, you know, before you ate your meal, was lost. And the obsession became clean hands. They totally forgot about the clean heart business, and they, and they just got all obsessed and out of whack regarding clean hands. Now, it should be added that this tradition regarding hand-washing also developed from the law of God that demanded the Jews to keep themselves separated from the heathen Gentile peoples all around them so that they might remain a separated people from which the Messiah, when he came, you know, could come. And so that they, Israel, would serve as a witness and a light for God to the other nations of the world by their holy separated living. However, the Jews again took this law of separation, that they were to be a separated people. They took this law to the limits and they developed traditions that required all kinds of, of cleansings following a, a, a Jew's exposure to other people. Traditions, they developed all these traditions that actually served to drive other people away from them and away from their God, the true God, not to them. The other people weren't attracted to them because of this or the true God. The, the rabbis, for example, the rabbis taught that a Jew, a Jewish person, was to thoroughly cleanse himself if he had had any contact at all with a Gentile. Even if, you know, if he was out in the marketplace and a Gentile happened to brush up against his clothing, just touched his clothing, not even his person. Or if he touched something that a Gentile had touched, then when, when a Jew got home, he was to cleanse himself from, from top to bottom. So what happened is that they had this attitude that you know, Gentiles were, we've talked about this before, that they were comparable to dogs almost. And you think the Gentile peoples didn't pick up on this? You know, remember the Samaritan woman was so surprised that Jesus talked to her. You, a Jew, are even talking to me? You know, the Jewish people had this, they, they were perceived as being totally snobs. They wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentiles. They don't even touch me. You know, you're unclean. It just got way out of whack. It demonstrated pride. And it told the other people of the world, instead of drawing those people to them, 
because of their love and everything, it, it just told the other people that they thought they were superior and that they themselves were inferior. That doesn't, if we act that way, does that attract the world? Oh, we're so much better than you because we're on our way to heaven. No, we should be humble and understand, you know, convey the message that we too are sinners. The only difference is that we've been forgiven and they too can be forgiven. Well, then to a simple cleansing of the hands came more and more details until hand washing became the absurd and rigid ritual that it was by the time the Lord Jesus Christ came to, to earth. <clears throat> One man I wrote named Albert Barnes said this. He said, quote, They had many foolish rules about the quantity of water that was to be used when they washed their hands, how much water to use, the way it, in which it should be applied, the number of times that the water should be changed, the number of those that might wash at a, at a time, etc., etc. You can just imagine how far they took this because we've seen this in other areas, such as the Sabbath. End of quote. So what had become uh, begun as a tradition to remind the Jews of the need for a clean heart and that they were to live separated holy lives so as to bring light to the rest of the world, this had degenerated in time to an empty ritual that caused the Jews this great pride and disdain for others. And as I said, their behavior certainly won very few people to the true God. Um, in fact, the religious rulers of Israel thought and taught the people that they were holy, they were righteous, if they obeyed these external rituals and kept their hands clean. Remember how when we, t we uh, spent a long time, was it a whole year, looking at the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7? This was basically his, his teaching, was that it's not the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, is it? It's, that's not true religion. True religion is a matter of the cleanliness and the holiness of the heart. It's not a matter of clean hands and external actions but a matter of a clean and a righteous heart. It's a matter of the inward attitudes, isn't it? And the inward motives. We heard him repeatedly tell the Jews in that sermon that even though they might obey the law externally, they broke it even if they had a wicked thought or if they, you know, if they lusted in their heart or they hated in their hearts or they prayed or they tithed or they uh, fasted hypocritically. The whole conflict that Jesus had with the religious system of his day was a matter of God's truth versus man's tradition. That's still a problem today in the church. God's truth versus man's tradition. It's a very serious problem, and this is why the, the Lord Jesus was always confronting the Pharisees on this point. He, he speaks his most harsh words to who? The religious crowd. He calls them hypocrites in what we're going to look at this morning. He calls them blind leaders of the blind. He said, God, his most harsh words, because this is a serious matter. God's truth versus man's tradition. He had to get to the heart of the problem, which was their heart. 
It was their desire to hold on to their man-made traditions while ignoring or altering God's word. And many churches do this today, which really shouldn't be shocking to us. There's nothing new under the sun. The traditions in many churches and the dogmas of, of many churches, such as we learned last time in our lesson on the dogma of transubstantiation, which isn't taught in the scripture at all, is it? But many churches uh, have these, their traditions, their dogmas, their man-made doctrines take precedence over the word of God. People are taught to hold to the teachings of their church or the, the, the men who establish their church, even if you take them directly to the word of God and show them that those teachings do not line up with the word of God. How many people will say, well, I don't care. So what? It's, it's still what my church teaches, and I'll believe it. I don't care what the Word of God says. It's a very dangerous but prevalent thing to have traditions take the place of truth. Very prevalent. More prevalent than we could ever imagine. And it's in all of our church, even in evangelical churches. <clears throat> the Jewish leaders had come to honor their traditions more than they actually did the Word of God. There was a popular, very popular rabbi named Eleazar, and he said this, quote, He who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. End of quote. Pretty strong, isn't it? They say, you know, if you don't go by the traditions, if you put this, the word of God above the tradition, you will not get into the kingdom, into heaven. Even the Mishnah, remember I said the Mishnah was nothing but a collection of their traditions, says this, quote, It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict the scripture itself, end of quote. That's in the Mishnah. That sounds like Catholicism when they say, well, the Pope, no matter what the Pope says, it's above and beyond, you know, what scripture says. The... Um, the Talmud, which is that many-volumed commentary on the Torah, the Pentateuch, adds this. It says, quote, My son, give more heed to the words of the rabbis than to the words of the law. End of quote. Now, at this point, let me describe to you, for you exactly what this ceremonial hand-washing tradition entailed. And today, and this is pretty amazing, all that they did, but... Today, those who still carry out this tradition probably add hygiene into the formula. But remember this, back then, when they did it, the people knew nothing about germs and bacteria. So, when, you know, we think, well, washing your hands before you eat is a good thing. It kills the germs. And probably the Jewish people were more healthy than the other people because of this. But that was not part of why they were doing it. The whole purpose of why they were doing it back then was not to remove physical germs but spiritual defilement which, which they said was caused by touching someone or something unclean such as a non-Jew or such as a woman who was on her menstrual period she was considered unclean uh, something dead or uh, some object that had been touched by one of the above even earthen vessels you know, pots and pans and cups and things like that that had contracted impurity 
were to be immersed in boiling water or uh, purged with fire or polished clean or broken and discarded. And this is what is meant in verse 4. If you look at Mark 7, 4, where it says, uh, And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. If they don't wash from head to toe, they don't eat. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of uh, cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. And the tables there speaks of the reclining couches. When they ate, they used to sit at, on couches that reclined. So if that, those couches had been defiled because um, a, a Gentile had sat on them, they had to clean the whole couch and then the table that they ate on as well. That would take a long time to prepare for a meal, wouldn't it? If you had to do all this cleaning, they didn't even have dishwasher. Now, it's, um, it, to me, it's kind of funny, but the Sadducees did not hold. Remember the Sadducees? They, they differ a lot from the Pharisees. The Sadducees didn't believe in a lot of the stuff that the Pharisees did. But the Sadducees didn't hold to a lot of these traditions. And so they actually said, they mocked the Pharisees about their hand washing, their, their cleansing rituals. And they said that the Pharisees would th soon think it necessary to wash even the sun. You know, the S-U-N. And I think it's kind of interesting because they said that, but here are the Pharisees even trying to wash the sun. The S-O-N. So anyhow, by the time of Jesus, the legal washing of hands before and after any meal, even if touching something unclean had not occurred. Let's say you didn't touch anything unclean. You still had to wash your hands. This, this uh, legal hand washing tradition had developed to the point where they said to omit this practice was to commit a crime worthy of death. Can you imagine? If you didn't wash your hands before you ate, you, you, know, you, you could be put to death. Now, I don't know if they actually did this, but they said it was a, uh, a crime worthy of death. They said that it was better to go four miles to get some water to wash your hands than to incur, incur the guilt by neglecting hand washing. They also said that one who neglected to do this was as bad as a murderer. And one rabbi said, quote, to eat with unwashed hands is as great a sin as adultery, end of quote. Furthermore, they said that this tradition had come down from Solomon. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Solomon was a wise man, and he probably said it's a good thing to wash your hands before you eat. So they claimed that it came from Solomon, and therefore it must be honored with the highest reward, this is a quote. They said, anyone living in the land of Israel eating his daily food in purification, that means washing his hands before he eats, speaking the Hebrew of the day, and praying morning and evening with the phylacteries, that's a, that little box of, that they put on their forehead, is certain that he will eat bread in the kingdom of God. End of quote. Now, do you, do you understand why with religious teaching like this, the people turned down the Lord's offer to eat his bread, his living bread from heaven, to eat his flesh, to internalize him, to receive him. I mean, why bother having to do something that involved inner commitment and, and even sacrifice if, if all you had to do in order to eat bread in the kingdom of heaven, according to their own religious leaders, would be to, what did it say? Wash your hands before you eat, speak Hebrew, and pray morning and evening. 
and then you could heaven would be yours. So do you get a bit, a little bit better of a picture why they turned him down, why they turned Jesus down? You know, denying self, taking up your cross, following him, you know, knowing him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, the actual practice of hand washing, all right, I told you I'd tell you what it was all about. Here we go. The actual practice of hand washing involved drawing water out with a little device called an, um, a natla, N-A-T-L-A, which was often made of glass and had to hold, this was a requirement, it had to hold a minimum of one and a half eggshells worth of water. <laughs> now, I wonder if they had peacock eggshells or chicken eggshells or turkey. But anyway, one and a half eggshells worth of water. And everybody carried their little natla with them. And water jugs were available at all Jewish homes, you know, for all family members and for any visiting guests. So that they could, you know, as soon as they got into the home, they could dip their, take their little natla out and dip their natla in the water jugs and then they could wash their hands. The water was poured on both hands. <clears throat> which were lifted up, first of all, this way, so that the water could run down to the wrist. Water, they'd take their natla, and, and I guess they had to do one and a half eggshells worth of water on each hand. <laughs> so the water had to run down, at, and they had to make very sure that the water ran down at least to the wrist in order to make sure that the whole hand was washed and that the water, which was polluted when it touched the hands, did not again run down the fingers, so they had to hold it like this. And then after they, they poured the, the natla worth of water on each hand, then they, they used the, the water-dripped hand, one, the knuckles, to rub each hand dry, like that. They had to rub each one. And if for, if some, for some reason you couldn't use your knuckles, you could use your head. So you could dry, <laughs> rub it with your head, but I get, I guess you had to have a clean head. And it even said if your head wasn't available, you could use a wall. <laughs> I, don't, I don't honestly understand that. But then once you had done it this way, then, uh, and it was very critical that the water had to run down to the wrist because if it didn't run all the way down to the wrist, you had to repeat it. It wasn't, it wasn't done properly. Then the next thing you did is you had to turn your hands this Well, I don't know. They had to turn them this way and again, dip the natla and pour the water from the wrist down, you know, so the water would drip off the fingers. You had to do it both ways. And let's see, where am I? The most pious of Jews would not only do this before eating, but they would actually do it between every course of their meal and after their meal as well. So I guess they would just, it would take a long time to eat their meals. By the time they finished breakfast, it'd be time for lunch. <laughs> and some of the rabbis actually taught that a demon named Shibta attached himself to people's hands while they slept. And if, if he was not ceremonially washed away, he would enter the body <clears throat> through the food that was eaten by defiled hands. Now, if you can't get your children to wash their hands, try that one. Don't wash your hands, Shibta will get you. <laughs> so the Pharisees found something to discredit Jesus, or at least his men. They didn't catch him not doing this, but they caught his men. 
um, they, they found something to fall before the public eye, and they were delighted, bless their little hearts. They were so happy. So they said, why is it that your disciples don't keep this most important tradition of hand-washing? But rather than answering their accusation, he turned the tables on them like he always did with his own accusation. <clears throat> and he used what he always used. What does he always use? What is his weapon? The Word of God. So let's look at the accusation of Jesus regarding heaven's word. And for this, we'll look at Mark, 6, uh, Mark 7, verses 6 to 13. It says in verse 6, He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah, that's Isaiah, prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside, aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washings of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. Let's see, am I supposed to stop there? No, go up, 13. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, now that's actually the fifth commandment. That's in the word of God. You know, honor your mother and father. And then over in Exodus 21, 17, it says if anyone who curses his mother or father should be put to death. So he's quoting scripture there. But in verse 11, it says, but ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free and ye shall suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God none of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. Uh, you probably don't understand that, but we'll explain that. The first thing the Lord did was expose the hypocrisy of these religious men by quoting to them uh, from Isaiah 29:13, which says, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's an easy verse to memorize. Using the scripture to respond to the fault finders was always the Lord's way, and it was a wise way. It's a wise enough way for us to, to uh, follow, isn't it? We should do the same. Our greatest weapon is the word of God. We need to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against God, and that we might use it to, um, to combat the enemy. We're always, always on holy ground when our arguments against our critics are based on the word of God. And this was how Christ had victory over Satan. Remember in the wilderness? When he was in there 40 days and 40 nights, how did he defeat Satan? With the word of God. Furthermore, he knew how to use it. He knew which scripture to use. He rightly divided the word of truth. The prophecy of Isaiah spoke very accurately of the people standing before him on this day. It was a fitting scripture for the occasion. And isn't that important for us, too, when we're using the word of God, that we know it well enough to know what scripture to use in which situations? The Lord, obviously, was the expert at this. He should be. He wrote the word of God, didn't he? So this was a very fitting scripture for the occasion. He didn't pull any punches when he said that his accusers were hypocrites in their worship of God. They were play actors 
who said all the right things with their lips, but had what? Wicked hearts. I mean, they were there to find fault with the very Son of God. They had evil hearts. They kept themselves clean as a whistle on the outside, but they were full of dead men's bones on the inside, weren't they? They, were, they had filthy hearts on the inside, filthy hearts full of sin. Hypocrites can say nice things. They can say all kinds of nice things and right things, but they do not mean what they say. So what they say is actually void. It means nothing. And do we have people like that with us today? Oh, yes. They can say all the right words, but their heart is far from God. It's something that we have to battle all the time. And we can stand in church and sing the hymns and say the prayers, and our lips are moving and saying the right things, but our hearts can be miles and miles away. Hypocrites generally, generally hypocrites will attach great importance to mere outward things in religion. But the heart, I don't know, I mean, it seems like every time we study the life of Christ, we always get back to the same thing. The heart, the heart is what God wants more than anything else. What is the first thing we need in order to be Christian? A new heart, right? We need a new heart. What is the sacrifice that God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? It's a believing heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? Where, where should Christ dwell? In your heart. To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to every, everybody? What does wisdom want the most from you? It says in Proverbs 23, 25, My son, or I could say my daughter, give me thine heart. The entire Judaistic system of first century Israel had become little more than a religious system of ceremonies and feast days and rituals and traditions. And it was worthless in God's eyes. Israel's religious leaders were not only caught up in the vanity of their own traditions, but they were also doing great harm, immense harm, by their teaching because it undermined the authority of the Word of God. They were making void the real truth. And they did this, as the Lord stated in Mark 7, 7, by teaching for doctrines, what? What were they teaching as, as doctrines of, of, of their religion? The commandments of men. Not the commandments of God, the commandments of men. In other words, they were saying that their man-made traditions and rules were the teaching of God's word. And secondly, we're told that they were even laying aside, this is in verse 8, they were even laying aside the teaching of God's word in order to make room for their own traditions, such as all this silly washing of pots and pans and and uh, reclining tables and clothing and um, et cetera, et cetera, and all the other crazy, twice he said, and all the other things that you do. I should have said all the other crazy such things that you do, according to your own inventions. Thirdly, according to the Lord's words in verse 9, you can see the digression here. Thirdly, they even had progressed to the point where they were rejecting God's word, what God's word had to say. 
Verse 9, it says, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. So at first they went, they were putting their tradition equal with God's word. Then they were laying aside God's word for their tradition. And here they went the full, the full nine miles. Um, what's this? Full nine yards. I knew that didn't <laughs> Well, they actually went nine miles <laughs> uh, because they rejected God's word. They actually put their traditions, got rid of God's word and put their traditions in its place. We generally do not begin going astray by actively opposing God, do we? If somebody goes astray, they don't actually, especially, you know, somebody in the church, uh, we start going astray when we start neglecting God and his word. If this neglect, then, is not corrected, it leads to actively opposing God and his word. Like, like many others, the fault finders of, this, of our text here did not start by actively opposing the Scripture. Or they were the, the students of Scripture. They were the teachers of Scripture. But they started by neglecting the Scripture for their emphasis on their traditions, the traditions of men. However, this led to a pronounced rejection of the commandments of God. And this, again, is what he told them over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it is said, but ye say. The Word of God says this, but you say this. And they did this so that they could keep their own tradition. And all of this resulted in the final fact that they were robbing God's Word of its power, not only in their own lives, but even worse, in the lives of the people. Which is why Jesus said in, in uh, verse 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. So sin starts small. It usually starts small, but if it isn't checked, it will grow into a monster. And that's what Judaism had become by the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. It had become a monster. And then... Now, I know you probably didn't understand what he's talking about there, like in verse 11 when he said Corban, but to give them an example of how they had twisted God's word and voided the truth with their own selfish teaching, he quoted them from the fifth commandment, which, of, um, of course, is where it says, Honor thy father and thy mother. And over, as I said in Exodus 21, 17, it says, if you, you know, of course we're to honor our parents, we're to obey our parents when we're still living with them, when we're children, until we go off and we're on our own. But it also involves caring for them when they get aged, when they need our help. You know, there comes a, comes a time, I'm still waiting for that day, <laughs> I'm just worn out with my children, and I think, when does it become their turn to take care of me? That's why my... I look like I've got six bags under my eyes because I went to my help my daughter with my grandchildren up in Virginia Beach this weekend, and I didn't get home until late last night, and I haven't had much sleep. Boy, it's, Amy, it's, Christy, it's hard having babies. Whoa. She only has two. You know, we went to church yesterday morning. Ward had to work, so I t helped her to go to church. By the time we got home, I said, you know what, why don't you just get the cassette? I don't think we heard more than 10 minutes of the sermon. I really can empathize with you girls right now. I was just worn out. I, it's good to be a grandmother, though, because Amy just, okay, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> anyway, uh, so it, it, taking care of your parents when they're aged is an important, that's an important part of the fifth commandment. 
You know, if they, if they need help physically or financially, we're to honor them by caring for them. But the Jews had come up with this um, way that they could get around it, around the fifth commandment. They had, through an ingenious and devious plan, they had devised a system called korban. You see it there, C-O-R-B-A-N, meaning a gift to God is what it means. And it says there, that is to say, a gift. Korban just means a gift. It's a, I think it's an Aramaic word. If a parent needed financial assistance from a grown son or daughter, in order to avoid breaking the fifth commandment about honoring their parents, that son or daughter merely had to dedicate, he'd, he'd go to the temple, and this is according to the rabbi's teaching, he could do this, he could go to the temple and dedicate all that he possessed, all his wealth and all of his possessions to God. He would just say, I hereby dedicate all my money, all my property, all my possessions are korban. They're a gift to God. I'm dedicating all to God. And then, you see, that son or daughter could go to his father and mother and tell them that he had already, I'm sorry, Mom, I cannot take care of you. I know you're going to lose the house. I know your health is declining, but I've already given all that I have to God. This was false piety. And therefore, they were not obligated. You know, it was out of their hands. They, could, they didn't have to take care of their, of their parents under this pretense of giving God a prior claim. And so he was not flatly denying his duty to minister to his parents with his substance, but he was evading it by setting up this human-made tradition. However, the key to this Corban tradition was that it did not obligate the son or daughter to actually give all of his possessions to the temple. What he did when he went to the temple initially to do that, to dedicate his wealth, is he'd give something, he'd give a small percentage to the temple. And see, the, the religious rulers were making money off of this deal because all that they were getting all that money. But they weren't obligated to give any of the rest of their wealth um, even if, I mean, they could give it on their deathbed, but most of them didn't even fulfill the obligation period, and nobody was keeping up after them to see that they did. So they got out of both ends of the deal. They didn't have to take care of their parents with this false piety, but then they also didn't give much to the temple. They didn't give all their, that they had to the temple either, to, to God. So it was, a terrible, it was a wicked tradition. It not only dishonored the parents, but it also dishonored the Lord who had made the command, the fifth commandment to begin with. You know, when men disobey the word of God, have you noticed they can get very, very cruel and mean to other people? Look at some of the other religions in the world, how mean and cruel and heartless they are. Hinduism, they don't care about people. Oh, well, they're just living, you know, they're, they're just living like that because their previous life, they had been a, a terrible person. They're heartless. What do we see in Islam? Very, very heartless people. And here, in, even in Judaism, um, when they turn from the word of God, they're even cruel and heartless to their own parents. Men are forever devising ways and schemes to avoid obedience to God. Are they not? Particularly, they like to think of ways in which their disobedience looks like obedience. And where their disobedience appears to be obedience to another divine command. 
The men are geniuses at twisting divine commands to free themselves from them, calling things by other names, you know, and being politically correct so that sin doesn't really sound like sin. But in the long run, what are they doing? They're really only harming themselves because God's commandments were not given to harm us. When we obey his commands, you know what we get? Blessings. Blessings follow obedience. But when we disobey them, we miss out on the blessings, and we have to live with the consequences. All right, you see, it's very easy to substitute tradition for truth because traditions being man-made can be easily kept by, by man. No outside power is necessary to keep them. It'd be very easy for me to wash my hands every time I ate and to think, well, I'm going to get into heaven because of that. That's easy. I can handle that. They re- traditions require no inner faith, no depend- dependence on God the Holy Spirit. Traditions appeal to the flesh because the one who obeys c- traditions can feel self-righteous while at the same time feeding his own self-interest. Tradition requires no heart righteousness. It's easier for men to honor God with their lips than with their hearts. And that's why rituals and ceremonies and other religious traditions all over the world, are so much more popular than this book, than the truth of God's word. The only heart, however, which can truly, truly worship God in spirit and in truth is the heart that belongs to him. And the only heart that belongs to him is the heart that has repented of sin and come to the Lord Jesus Christ to be cleansed of that sin and made righteous. Now, in and of themselves, there is nothing wrong with traditions. Is there anything wrong with washing your hands before you eat or even washing your hands after you eat or taking a bath after you've been to Walmart? No. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with most traditions. Now, there are with some. But when they are substituted for God's word and when they are used in any way, such as this Corban thing, to distract or distort God's word, then they become an abomination in the sight of God. Transubstantiation is a, an abomination in the sight of God. And they become a barrier to true salvation and true worship. How many people wrongly think that they're going to go to heaven just because they do this and this and that externally? It's so sad. It becomes a... a, a, a a total twisting and a perversion of God's law, and people think they're saved and they're not saved. That's the danger of tradition. Well, I'm just going to read the last verses, flip over real quickly to Matthew 15, and we'll close. I'll just read them, okay? This basically, you already know what you're going to hear Jesus say, and it's the whole crux of the matter here. Look at verses 12 to 20 of Matthew 15. Uh, well, let's actually look at verse 11. Uh, No, 10. Let me start at 10. (laughs) I keep backing up. Then Jesus called to the multitude. There must have been a multitude of people standing around, and he said, hear and understand. And this is what he says to you and I, too. Hear and understand. Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the man, this defileth a man. Okay, then cometh, and now we learn from Mark that his, he and his disciples went into a house. So this, the rest of this is said privately just to his apostles. It says in verse 12, Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? I think that's funny. 
You think Jesus didn't know that the Pharisees were offended when he called them hypocrites? <laughs> but his apostles said, oh, Jesus, do you know that you've offended the Pharisees? Of course he knew. But he answered and said, every plant, now here he's talking about the hypocritical religious rulers. He says, every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. You know what he's saying there? The scribes and Pharisees were tares. God hadn't planted them. Let them alone. Just leave them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leave the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. That's the scary part is when people follow these blind leaders because they all will end up in the bottomless pit. Then answered Peter, of course, <laughs> and said unto him, Declare unto this, us this parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. Pretty self-evident, isn't it? It's not what goes in that defiles us, but what comes out surely shows what really is in the heart. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that there is an answer to the problem of the dirty heart of man, of which the Bible says that it is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We know, Father, that apart from your saving grace, each and every one of us is capable of committing any one or all of the wicked sins that were listed by Jesus here in this lesson. But because he died on the cross to directly deal, thank you, Jesus, to directly deal with our sin problem, we are now offered the possibility of having our sins completely forgiven and cleansed through our faith in him. Thank you that by yielding to your spirit within, we have the potential power to keep our hearts clean and pure. Father, help us to understand that the true righteousness and the true worship that pleases you is that which comes from a humble and contrite, loving, broken heart. May we never, ever put our hope for salvation in anything less than our faith in what Jesus did for us. And we thank you for that, Jesus. Now go with each woman and bring us all back safely next week. Lord, help us to be light and salt for you this following week. For we love you, Jesus. We pray in your blessed name. Amen.